0: So welcome back to How to Win 2024. It's Thursday, February 22nd. I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and I'm here with my co-host, Claire McCaskill. Hi,
1: Claire. Hey, Jen. So it is a beautiful day in St. Louis, Missouri. The sun is shining, and it's in the 60s, and it feels like spring is almost here, which means it's almost Super Tuesday.
0: Yeah. It feels like this week, I mean, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff, but it feels like this week. Sort of the impact of MAGA's takeover of the Republican Party taking hold in people's lives in real ways. Continuing in the new strategy session that we have created, so Claire and I want to highlight a few top-line issues with our campaign strategy and communications lens as if we were in the Biden campaign war room. Top-of-mind issues this week, how threatened reproductive rights will be under our Trump administration. Biden moving to offense on his ability to lead. I feel like they're getting traction there. That is good. The Little House majority that couldn't. And Joe Manchin's decision not to run as a no-labels third-party presidential candidate. Woot. Jen and I
1: are also going to talk with Kansas City Mayor Quentin Lucas. He's going to catch us up on how the Kansas City community is healing after last week's brutal shooting at the Chiefs Parade and what he, as a city leader, is doing to tamp down gun violence and deal with some of the most awful gun laws in the country.
0: And we are going to spotlight the death of Alexei Navalny and talk about how Russian aggression in Ukraine is connected to the need for Congress to pass an aid bill. Trump's comments continue to embolden Putin. I feel like this is potential to break through with voters in a way that we haven't seen before. So we're going to do a spotlight on that. So before we get into all
1: that, we have a little housekeeping note. If you're in New York or New Jersey or the surrounding area, we'd love for you to join me and Jen for a live (laughs) conversation with MSNBC's Katie Tur at the 92nd Street Y. If you've ever been to any of the programming at the 92nd Street Y, it is always interesting and engaging, and we would love to see you. It is this coming Thursday, February 29th at 8 p.m. Eastern. And if you're not in the area, you can always join us online. We'll be previewing Super Tuesday. We'll be talking about how to win in November. It's going to be a lot of fun. Be sure to join us. You can get more info at 92ny.org. And we'll link to that site in our show notes. Okay, so a couple of things that I would be talking about if I were in the strategy sessions with the Biden campaign this week. I think first and most importantly is we have two things on the abortion front. First, we have Trump admitting out loud that he supports a national ban, which means that we have a number of states that would lose their rights to allow women to keep the government out of the most personal, private, and painful decision they probably will ever make. And he said at the time, well, 16 weeks is a nice, even number. Yeah, As if that uh, has like so anything offensive. to do with it. I mean, this is just, this guy does not get women. I don't think a national ban is going to pass, but I think this is something that the Biden campaign really can go on offense. And then all you have to do is look what happened after Trump admitted he supported a national ban. You see what the Alabama Supreme Court did. And this is really frightening. We now have, obviously, some kind of Christian nationalist that is the chief justice of the Alabama Supreme Court. If you read the opinion, it really is bone chilling. It's bonkers. Yeah. It's a theocracy thing. It's all through the lens of God and religion, but says that an embryo is a person. So what happens? Of course, the University of Alabama shuts down their IVF clinic. And women who had IVF appointments scheduled, I should say women and their partners, can no longer have the hope that they can have a child. And really, this is where I think the Biden campaign has to be careful about how they communicate this, because it really shows the hypocrisy of this extremist movement. This isn't about bringing children into the world. Because any common sense reading of that opinion is going to say that, yes, there'll be no IVF. People are not going to risk being sued or potentially put in prison for doing a medical procedure to help a couple conceive. So do
0: they really care about life or are they just caught in a cult of extremism? Cult that is about controlling women? What? What do you think the ultimate cult is about? You well, know, this that's is the thing. First of all, Nikki Haley said embryos are babies. So she's going down the Trump
1: path on this. But then I watched a video of a woman at the Heritage Foundation this week. I don't know if you saw this online. Oh, I saw it. Oh, I saw it. Where she said, we got to go after contraception. She said, we have to get back to when sex is only between a man and a woman in a committed relationship. And this is what women should want. And feminists need to take up the cause of doing away with contraception.
0: Sex should have consequences. That was her argument. We
1: have to get back so that sex is consequential. That was a phrase she used. Oh, my God.
0: Such bullshit. Even prior to the Alabama Supreme Court IVF ruling, I thought there's a lot that happened this week. And I really think that all of this picture with Russia becoming clearer about all of the ways that they are messing with us as well as the rest of the world is really important. But if I'm the Biden campaign, the most important thing that happened was the New York Times story about Trump supporting a national abortion ban. And then that was prior to the IVF decision. But the IVF decision just blows this whole thing wide open for people to see this doesn't end with Roe v. Wade. That wasn't just the goal. There is a crazy extremist movement that Trump keeps alive, fuels, will keep going, will continue to lift up, continue to empower and act on. I think he thinks this national abortion ban 16 weeks is going to be a popular thing. And we saw what happened in Virginia last fall when the, the Virginia Republicans, Glenn Youngkin, the governor there, tried to win back the state legislature by running on this notion, thinking that it was a moderate position. And it's like There isn't a moderate position. The position is let women decide, right? Let women have these rights back. And so I think that the IVF thing is so searing. I think it's a real game changer. Yeah. So do you see Biden going on offense this week? Okay, so we had the special counsel February 8th, Robert Hur report. We had the press conference that night where the president flubbed the, you know, he called President C.C. of Egypt, the president of Mexico. Everyone freaked out. I have come to believe that was a good thing because it was a good moment. Everyone freak out now. Freak out in February. <laughs> he's going to continue to make mistakes. Let us see the mistakes in real time. But we will also let us see the good job Joe Biden is doing. Right. And I feel like that's what's happening on the, both within the White House and the campaign. The president, you know, he's like, oh, he doesn't do a lot of interviews. He takes questions from the press. Almost every day. He did it on Tuesday. He did it on Monday. He did it on Friday. He did it last Wednesday. Multiple times a week, he's interacting with the press. That means we get to see him doing his job, right? And also, he's being very Joe Biden. Yesterday at a fundraiser where he knew his remarks were, you know, going to be recorded, he said that Putin was a real SOB. Yes, he is, Mr. President. You know, let Joe be Joe. And the way the tipping point I feel like in terms of people freaking out about his age and like, oh, should we replace him, which is as Claire and I already went through last week, is bonkers, was when Ezra Klein wrote this piece in the New York Times about how we should replace him. Go into the convention without a nominee. Suspend all campaign operations between now and then. Don't use the $130 million that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have raised, a record number for Democrats and hope that somebody good comes out of the convention in August and have 11 weeks to run a general election campaign against Donald Trump. OK, like we've all now we've gone through it all. We see it's bonkers. And I, you know, I can just feel the tide turning and that fire in the room. It's like offense, just like just put the pedal to the floor and just Go. Let us see him. Let us see more of him. Let us see him make his mistakes. But we see him doing a good job. Really push back on everyone. Mobilize people to stop the panickers. And I feel like people just feel like Biden supporters feel emboldened. So that is good. Also, Donald Trump is a threat the United States and the world has never known. And by the way, Joe Biden's been a phenomenal president. Yes, he has. That's not a footnote.
1: That's a headline. And then this week, I think the Biden campaign needs to celebrate the fact that Joe Manchin has admitted out loud that his candidacy would be a spoiler. And if I were the Biden campaign, I would be trying to get Joe Manchin out there talking about that, that third party candidates are spoilers. He has a lot of credibility on this because clearly he's not been, let's go, Joe Biden. He has been somebody who's been highly critical of the president. So it gives the whole idea that voting for Kennedy or West or Stein is, in fact, voting for Trump. And so the Biden campaign needs to get Manchin out there and get him talking about that.
0: Yeah, and it's just valuable that he said it out loud. Even if if he doesn't ever want to talk about it again, you can say the person looked at this seriously and concluded it would help. Donald Trump. And so no one else should take this kind of risk. Very unclear what note labels is going to end up doing. It's like getting just more closed off, more secretive. Okay, we've got to take a quick break. But when we come back, Kansas City Mayor Quentin Lucas joins us for a check-in on how his city is doing after last week's shooting. Back in a moment.
1: Welcome back, folks. If you've ever listened to this podcast or had a conversation with me for longer than five minutes, you know that being a Kansas City Chiefs fan is in my bones. It's where I live. But last week, the shooting that occurred in a joyous day of celebration really hurt. It, It It hurt not just those of us who care about Kansas City, but I think it hurt the country because it was a new first. But what should have been a moment of community and celebration turned into horror. And so today, Jen and I want to talk about what happened with the leader of that community. And we also want to discuss, even candidly, in a context where politics comes into play, because frankly, it does.
0: The epidemic of gun deaths is not exclusive to Kansas City, but it does seem to be a uniquely American problem. Pew Research crunched the numbers from the CDC, and in 2021, which is the year of the most recent complete data, more Americans died of gun-related injuries than in any other year on record. That was over 48,000 people.
1: And that data was taken by every town, and their research team broke those numbers down even further. And they calculate that on average, 120 Americans are killed every day with guns, and more than 200 are shot and wounded. To help us process all this and look at what common sense ideas cities can look to is Quentin Lucas, my friend and the wonderful mayor of Kansas City, Missouri. Those of you who are not aware, it is Missouri, not Kansas. (laughs) That's right. Mayor Lucas, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you. It's great to be with everybody.
1: You bet. So first, tell us how the community is doing. How is everybody feeling and how has everyone processed this tragedy?
2: This one is tough. In a place that knows all too much gun violence, this incident was something that, and maybe we should have expected it. You mentioned a parade, you know, schools, so many things have had mass shooting events. But for some reason, we thought, probably like everybody does, that this was special. We had done a Super Bowl parade just the year before. We had done one two years before that. I mean, this is something that we thought we were good at. And you had, and you've probably heard, we had... 850 law enforcement officers there. We had snipers, some people armed to the teeth on roofs in so many places. And so, although this is so very American, I don't think we expected it. So you have a lot of people reeling about it. But there was another thing that I think was and has been important for us is that it touched everybody. You know, sometimes people Mm -hmm. try to make stories of gun violence a story just of America's inner cities, although there are ignoring rural homicides and any number of other issues that impact us. But this is something that got everyone in the Chiefs fan base. And Claire can tell you that means inner city folks. That means somebody who lives in a town of 200 people who drove in. That means people in wealthy suburbs, team owners like Clark Hunt, governors of both Missouri and Kansas. Everybody was there together and experienced that. And I think there is some community-wide trauma with which everyone's still dealing.
1: So how are you going to deal with this? I remember riding in way more St. Patrick's Day parades than I can count. And I mean, I I have a vivid memory of taking my very small children on the parade route with me. That's a huge celebration in Kansas City also. And obviously it's coming up. What are you going to do?
2: That's probably the hardest part of all. You know, last Friday after the shooting, I went to a high school. I just wanted to know, how are kids processing this? And part of how they process it now is to just say, yeah, we know if we're going anywhere with a lot of people, we might get shot, which is horrifying. I grew up in Kansas City. I grew up in some of Kansas City's toughest neighborhoods that I know Claire did good work on to try to clean up and and make better. But there is something different about now where I think people are saying we will still have a parade. We'll still celebrate St. Patrick's Day. We'll still do big things. But 15-year-olds, 14-year-olds know to over their shoulder. They know to have an evacuation plan. They know to run. That's what I think we're doing. We'll have law enforcement there, just like every other community that's been impacted has law enforcement. But I think you're going to have just two schools of thought. Some people are going to say, I'm not going. And I have a three-year-old son now, and I think my wife and I are talking about that. And there'll be others that say the price of engagement in society is understanding that there are people, not just with handguns, but with AR-15s and everything under the sun that can be a threat and a risk to you at any big event.
0: Mary, you said that everyone was impacted. Is there any sense in the community, I imagine the community feels, you know, some brotherhood with each other and, and, and coming together around that tragedy. Is there any sense community-wide that something should be done <laughs>
2: about Yeah, guns? I mean, I would say this. I would start with what yep. I like to call normal Kansas Cityans, people who live in Kansas City, okay. people who live in our suburbs, by the way. And I really do think as we talk More broadly about the politics long term, I'm not one of them, but I am talking to you if you are a suburban white woman who doesn't want her kids or her grandkids shot. There is one set of folks who are saying there are things we can do. The abundance of available and accessible firearms is an issue. The fact that in this state, there aren't even concealed carry laws. And I know that there are people on the other side who say, oh, criminals break laws anyway. Doesn't mean we've gotten rid of all laws. It doesn't mean we don't have laws against (laughs) murder or or drug trafficking or anything under the sun. No, you actually still try to use enforcement tools for the police. So I think there are a lot of people who are stepping up and saying, let's do something. We want to do something. The challenge just is that on another side, the conversation has been about doing nothing at all. It has Mm -hmm. been about these odd conversations on Kyle Rittenhouse and Why weren't the mugshots released immediately? Just absolute buffoonery, frankly. And it's the sort of thing that breaks my heart for a community where there are people who are saying, yeah, enough's enough. We do grieve. Let me just say this in case it's not clear from the facts for anybody listening. Two dozen people almost don't get shot if you don't have some high capacity firearms there, right? And as the facts go out and I'm not getting ahead of my prosecutor or my police, But the way you get the sheer numbers that are hit and impacted in all of these incidents relates to the guns that we have being possessed by people all around. And that, unfortunately, is not a conversation that has much leeway in Jefferson City, Missouri or Topeka, Kansas.
0: And I know that the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence, they ranked Missouri as having the third weakest gun laws nationwide. Is there some path forward? What's the biggest challenges facing gun reform in Missouri, locally in Kansas City, What do you think would make the most difference?
2: Well, you know, a few different things. First of all, the city of Kansas City, because the state has gone even more extreme all the time, continues to pass more ordinances that just align purely with federal law. For example, prohibitions against the possession of firearms by domestic abusers and those who are subject to orders of protection, something that prosecutors for years in Missouri could do and intervene in and that the state has made very challenging for them. So for us, concern one is actually that the U.S. Supreme Court this year obliterates even that protection. Here on the local level, I think probably the most active effort we are doing are twofold. One, how do we get more people elected that will be sensible? Easier said than done. Item two, is this an opportunity for a statewide ballot initiative? Of course, on the abortion rights issue, that's something being attempted here as well that has received an answer from our state legislature to try to obliterate even the statewide ballot initiative process, trying to pass laws that in a way eliminate our ability to do that or require a certain number of signatures in every congressional district that of course, you know, you you never quite hit in some areas of a place like Missouri. We I think are doing all of the above because I do think that at the end of the day, there is this view that no matter your party, no matter your background. You don't want your kid getting killed at school or your kid shot at a flipping parade. And so we plan to continue to intervene in every way we can in connection with those issues.
1: You know, it's, it's interesting, Quentin, when I look at how much Missouri has changed. I've been around long enough that I remember when Missouri voted down carrying concealed weapon at mm. the ballot box. I mean, think about this, Quentin, that Clay County and Platt County voted to prohibit carrying concealed weapons. And think about what all of that feels like now. I I think it's important for people to realize how extreme, and this ties in with this podcast, because this podcast is How to Win 2024. And one of the things that's going to hurt, I think, the Republican Party is how extreme they have become on a number of issues, like voters' rights, like burning books, like the right for a woman to decide a very private and personal decision without the interference of the government, and frankly, gun safety laws. I think all of those things, we are in the majority, and the Republican extreme is the minority. But Missouri is very extreme on these laws. I mean, right now, they have refused to outlaw minors carrying, openly carrying weapons. So right now, Kansas City, Missouri police, let's assume... That one of these guys that got in a fight, and let's assume, I don't know what kind of gun he had, but just for purposes of a hypothetical, let's assume he had an AR-15 with a clip that allowed Mm -hmm. him to kill a lot of people at once. If a 16 or 15 or a 22-year-old was walking down the street with that gun, openly carrying it, can the Kansas City, Missouri police stop him?
2: The short answer is they're not. The longer answer is you can try to take them to the local U.S. attorney's office, which probably won't bring a charge against the 16-year-old. So by and large, your functional answer is no, and that is insanity. I don't know anybody from a Long Island, a St. Louis County, any place that is saying, we think that this is sensible in the slightest, and I do think when you look at wedge issues, once you get past talking about the president or Mr. Trump's age, which come on guys, just irrelevant, not important to us right now, but instead actually get to issues. Issues like, do we want to continue to allow slaughter, mass slaughter at normal events? I had a conversation with my police chief, and I don't think she has a problem with me divulging this much, where we said, well, if the Chiefs, as Claire and I hope, win the Super Bowl next year, what do we do? And the answer was, well, maybe we make them go to the stadium, they have a ticketed event, which is unfortunate because it's probably only with people who have the money to pay for however much it'll cost. And in my head, I'm saying, Wait, something as fundamental as parades, you know, for any of us who grew up with struggle, and frankly, no matter where we grew up, a parade is just like a normal thing. You can't have parades and festivals. And it's not because there's all of these soft on crime liberals and all of that, but it's because we're unwilling to say that we just want to make sure that AR-15s and other modified firearms, clocks with switch devices and others aren't in our community. I mean, that's astounding to me. You know, I don't know why today we're actually having these talks about how much more dangerous it has to be for our kids. When I got dropped off at school in the early 1990s, we could trust, for the most part, that there wasn't some madman coming to a school to shoot us all up, or at the very least, they're not using certain military-style firearms to do it. Whereas today, any of you who drop off your children or your grandchildren, nieces, and nephews, you see it's a fortress at the daycare, at your local school. And I would hope that Americans start to see it doesn't have to be this way at parades, at movie theaters, at schools. And I do think that starts to be an issue if there is somebody who is willing to talk about it, particularly in swing states where there still is enough of an edge where people know it can change. I think that will make a difference for voters long term.
1: There's been a lot of discussion, Quentin, about um, the homicide rate I know in Kansas City, which you've struggled with. And there's also a lot of controversy around police reform. And you've kind of been at the crossroads of how do you deal with violent crime and police reform in an effective way that shows concern that police are not being unfair in the way they treat, particularly people of color and particularly in certain neighborhoods, but also the reality. I've told this story many times, but one of the most dramatic moments I remember of the time I had Gene Peters Baker's job as the prosecutor in Kansas City was when the mother told me the hardest decision she made every night was which child was going to sleep in the bathtub to avoid a drive-by shooting. And that was just like startling to me. And so what are you trying to implement in terms of police reform in light of the challenges you face with violent crime in Kansas City?
2: Police are an important part of the solution. This year, and I got some real negatives when I announced this in the budget, we're proposing a 30% pay increase for Kansas City police officers so that we can recruit officers so that we can have enough. Mm-hmm. But when people talk about the reasons people don't become officers and yeah, if you listen to the fraternal or police leaders, namely the guys over 50, they'll say, oh, it's AOC we're worried about, or it's all this sort of stuff. When I actually talk to 25-year-old cops or 26-year-old guys and gals, or when I talk to my nephews, one of whom's in the United States Marine Corps, one in the Army, and I say, hey, would you come back to Kansas City and be a police officer? They're saying, why would I deal with that? Why would I deal with getting shot at by things that are, frankly, outpowering what I might have? It is the risk and the threat at issue. All of these crazy gun laws, to me, all they're doing is actually putting our officers more at risk. What it means is when they go to pick up a fugitive today, they have to plan for a firefight because they're assuming everyone can get whatever type of firearm. If a bunch of teenagers walk in the streets of Kansas City today can get their hands on AR-15s with extended clips or anything under the sun, then what does that mean for an officer doing even normal things? And so we're trying to recruit more as much as we can. We're trying to intervene in lives earlier, telling kids there's an alternative path. But I think gun safety, having fewer guns around, is an important part of our whole safety conversation.
1: And what about police reform? What are you doing in the neighborhoods? Are you having trust issues on prosecuting these homicides that nobody wants to come forward because nobody trusts the police?
2: Uh, We are dealing with that. And on police reform, a few different things. One, on the recruiting side, having departments that look more like their cities are an important part of of what we do. Not being afraid to say we need Black and Latino officers in our city. Doing particular recruitment at HBCUs, you know, Lincoln University in Missouri and others is an important part of what we're trying to do. On the police reform side, a few different steps we've taken, having better and more thorough review of officer-involved incidents. We now are referring any officer-involved shooting to outside agencies, letting people know that, yes, we recognize that there is a history, there's also a present that says, we need to make sure we're listening to you. So doing as much of that as possible, and importantly, making the engagement in the community, more of our community action network centers, so that frankly, you have people, officers who are present in a neighborhood Not just to arrest people, not just to be there in and out quickly, but instead to actually build those neighborhood connections. All of those are efforts, but I would be lying to you today if I didn't say, yeah, there's a huge trust issue that pervades in America. And by the way, there was a debate. I was profiled on Fox News this week. I didn't expect it, but that happens to black politicians all the time nowadays. You know, calling folks in communities any types of names or saying it's a black community issue or all these sorts of things don't help us don't help us come to solutions. And I think that's the battle we're facing in places like Missouri today.
0: Mayor, I know that you are in Washington to attend a event with the president on gun violence prevention. And that I saw that when the U.S. Conference of Mayors met on January 18th, you did a discussion with the vice president, you know, just a couple weeks before the shooting. Tell us about what you expect to happen at the White House, what your experience with the administration is. I know President Biden's worked on this issue for decades, back to the Brady Bill and assault weapons ban. But tell us about what you expect,
2: what you're going to do there. You know what I'll say first for the administration is that, damn it, they're trying. Yeah. You know, probably the most profound thing I've done of late, and I grew up knowing gunshots and I've had family members, sadly, we've lost to homicide, but... I was in Connecticut this summer at an event Senator Chris Murphy put on, Mm. and I talked to parents of children who were killed at Sandy Hook Elementary. And probably the most heartbreaking part while I'm talking to these mothers is that how many years on are we from that incident? Twelve. Twelve? I mean, that's probably the thing that is the most concerning and disturbing. And I talked to the vice president about that. I've talked to the president and the attorney general previously about it, which is, what are we doing? It's one thing to, and totally tragic, and I don't know it, to lose a child, but to see everybody collectively say, eh, we'll move on, and to see more children lost and more families lost. And I think what my conversation with the vice president was about, and that was in front of about 500 mayors or something of the sort, was to say, first, there are resources for communities that are impacted by gun violence. It was to say, stand with us. You know, we saw the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act passed, the first serious gun legislation passed in a generation, Mm -hmm. which was vital. But to say that, yeah, there are ways to do more. And in states like mine, where there are federal resources to help us stand up red flag laws, which seem to be the simplest thing ever, which is to say, how do we make sure if there's someone who's exhibited that they are in crisis, they don't get access to firearms? I think the vice president was making an appeal to say, whether you're in Missouri or Texas or Florida or Ohio, or the list goes on and on, Please keep fighting for that, because we want to see lives saved. We don't want to see these incidents. And frankly, I think they were showing that we do have partners, even where we have governors like mine, who today is tweeting about how Missouri stands with Texas on the border. And we have an epidemic of gun violence in Kansas City and in St. Louis and in gun deaths in Missouri. My state is the number one state for black homicides in the country. Hmm. And sure, you can play cowboy and go to Texas and do anything under the sun. But I would hope saving lives in our communities are actually more important for our own governor.
1: Quentin's being kind. You know, he has to be careful. I think you're the only major city in the country whose police department is controlled by the governor, which goes back to Pendergast and crazy corruption back in the day. And now the people who get elected in Jefferson City don't want to give up that power. And so I got to say this, state legislative races matter. Way too many people get focused just on president and senate and governor, and Congress, and maybe the mayor of a big city, but they forget about state legislatures. And the state legislature in Missouri is hurting our state.
2: Fair enough, yeah. I I will just say briefly, it is insanity. And I think the problem in our state legislative races too. So few are paying attention that lobbyists and others are able to just kind of say whatever. These folks will file the bills, they'll pass, because no one wants that negative issue. And the hardest part of it all right now is, too, just like Donald Trump has created and it's filtered down all throughout the country, you get these pretenders and imitators who are just saying rhetoric for no reason at all. After the shooting last Wednesday, the Secretary of State of Kansas, who's a character, Chris Kobach, doubled down on just these points. I don't know if anybody really asked him any questions about anything, but you just want to own the space of, I said the craziest thing possible that feeds the red meat to the crowd that is the concern right now and nobody's actually thinking about how do we save lives in our communities
1: well you are and kansas city is lucky to have you and i'm so glad that you took on a very important day for you going to the white house and talking with the president about the heartbreaking kansas city and what we can do about this kansas city's lucky to have you and have a good visit with the president tell him that jen and i say hello he likes us
2: <laughs> we'll do
1: And we'll look forward to having you back, hopefully, after you celebrate the Chiefs' Super Bowl victory next year with a big parade.
2: We look forward to it. Thank you all. And thank you for talking about this important issue.
1: You bet, Quentin. Thank you, Mayor. We have to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're shining the spotlight on Russia's continuing efforts to influence our elections and the legacy Alexei Navalny leaves behind.
0: Welcome back. As I mentioned at the top of the show, the death of Russian opposition leader and anti-corruption activist Alexei Navalny sent shockwaves through the U.S. and Europe. Concerning pro-democracy advocates in Russia and all around the world, President Biden directly blamed Putin for his death.
2: Make no mistake, Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. Putin is responsible. What has happened to Navalny is yet more proof of Putin's brutality. No one should be fooled. Not in Russia, not at home, not anywhere in the world.
1: You know, Navalny's death came after Trump offhandedly, Mm -hmm. kind of cavalierly broadcasting at a rally in South Carolina that he would encourage Russia to do whatever the hell they want with our best friends, the democracies that have supported us whenever we have needed them.
2: One of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia... Will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay You're delinquent. He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay.
1: You got to pay your bill. You know, this bromance, this bestie stuff with Trump and Putin is not only ludicrous, Mm -hmm. but it's a serious threat to national security. And this, I think, is really a narrative that needs to take hold. And as you said at the top, Jen, I think what happened with the murder of Navalny kind of highlighted the brutal nature of this thug. And it highlighted the fact that the Republican Party has completely disappeared when it comes to defending freedom, when it comes to making sure democracies thrive. It has become the party of Putin. And no better example of that than the aid package for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan, great bipartisan numbers in the Senate, and now it sits over in the House.
0: The do-nothing House, the House which can't get anything done, which can't get a border bill passed, so the president's going to have to take some kind of executive action on its own. But I feel in addition to Navalny, and by the way, Putin did that, you know, had him killed, because we saw what he looked like the day before he died. He looked okay, right? So this seems like a planned thing. Also, after Tucker Carlson's just outrageous, can't-be-believed, jaw-dropping interview with Putin, right? So that's how effed up that guy is. Get Tucker Carlson on the hook defending this country, have the former president of the United States defend this country, say Russia can do whatever it wants, and then kill the most popular opposition leader in the world, presumably. So those guys have blood on their hands. So Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump, and he drags all the Republicans with them, are just further in debt to Putin. And, you know, Trump's relationship with Putin predates him being president of the United States. You know, you will go back into the early 2010s and find Donald Trump saying nice things about Vladimir Putin. There has always been an admiration, a connection. But like it is taking over the Republican Party. They are not doing anything in Ukraine. A Russian operative, Smirnov, is revealed this week to have fed Russian government disinformation to Republicans in the Congress. Navalny is dead. Ukraine is on the verge of collapse if the United States is not able to get money and the House Republicans are standing in the way of that as they are passing on disinformation spread to them by a Russian operative on behalf of the Russian government to try to impeach the president of the United States. In 2016, when I worked for Hillary, we spent a lot of time trying to convince the press that this was a serious issue, that Russia was trying to interfere in the United States presidential election to elect Donald Trump, and everyone ignored us. And now you feel like it's really coming full circle, right? This is going to be a major issue in the presidential campaign. President Biden said after Trump did what he did about NATO, he said that's anti-American, right? It goes back to the fundamental question what this election is about. Protecting the republic, protecting the democracy. It just comes into real relief this week. Like, wow, it's not just that Donald Trump's got a crazy Christian nationalist agenda behind him. Vladimir Putin who's not going to be satisfied until he has not just restored the Soviet Union, but, you know, maybe even going further into Europe. Yeah, I think going on
1: offense on Putin is so smart for the Biden campaign. I think it's really important to draw the connection between the money. John McCain used to always talk about that really all Russia was was a gas station masquerading as a country that ran on corruption. And what Putin has done is Putin has his circle of oligarchs that he has made billionaires. And guess who Trump wants to be close to? Guess who Trump wants to sell overpriced condos and put his name on cheesy-looking buildings with a lot of gilt gold? Yeah, It's Russian oligarchs. And, you know, the whole thing with Hunter Biden and this guy who was clearly an agent of Russian disinformation when he told the FBI that somehow Joe Biden was involved in Hunter Biden's deals. I mean, this is in plain sight. They are having to take the word of an indicted perjurer, whereas all the Trump grift, a lot of it courtesy of Putin and his oligarchs, is not talked about. I think they've got to remember that just because people have heard it, it doesn't mean they can't hear it over, 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 over and over again.
0: You know, not only is Navalny dead, the Russians are holding Evan Gorsuch, right, the Wall Street Journal reporter. And then after, again, keep in mind, this is all part of the plan, people. They get Trump on the hook on NATO. They get the ridiculous Tucker Carlson interview. They kill Navalny. And then they kidnap another American, a young woman this time whose sin is for espionage because she donated $50 to the Ukrainian war effort. The point is for it to be outrageous. The point is for us to fear that, right? They look for things that seem outrageous so that we become a nerd to them. You know, you just see the picture clearly, what Putin is willing to do and how much Trump and the Republican Party is backing him up. And now we've got this bill
1: that Lindsey Graham and many, many other Republicans didn't vote for. It's in the House. We have a centrist bipartisan effort in the House to bring a bill forward. And here's Mike Johnson. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's stuck on neutral. I mean, I believe there's rumblings that people don't think Mike Johnson has what it takes to be a leader. You can't always just stick your finger up and figure out, well, what do I need to do to keep my job? You've got to lead, especially when you have such a slim majority. So they've talked about a discharge petition, but that is Mm -hmm. a nuclear option for the Republicans. So people who need to understand what this is, essentially, you can bring a bill to the floor of the House of Representatives without the Speaker's permission. It basically castrates the Speaker, to use a gross term. (laughs) But it takes away his power by allowing people without his approval to bring it to the floor. The Republicans are saying they're not willing to do that at this point. Marjorie Taylor Greene is saying that if Mike Johnson has the nerve to bring this moderate bipartisan proposal to the floor, that she will take Mike Johnson out as speaker. It doesn't include humanitarian aid, but it does include aid to Taiwan, to Israel, and most importantly, to Ukraine. So Mike Johnson's going to have to do something when he gets back. He's got to keep the government open, and that's looming March 1st. But he's also going to have to make a decision on what we do about helping Ukraine, because if we don't help Ukraine now, it's just going to cost us more later because it's not like Putin's going to go, "Okay, that went well. I'm going to go home now and quit.
0: It's just going to cost more later. And by the way, like a huge majority of the American people support funding for Ukraine. Right. You know, they get it. It's a winner. It's a winner. And the other thing that's happening that's different from before, where Russia didn't really break through as a vulnerability for Trump, is... Nikki Haley, right? You have a very prominent Republican out there most days criticizing Trump for helping be part of propping up this murderous dictator. And when you hear those arguments from a Republican, I feel like that is when it breaks through to the public consciousness. So speaking of Nikki Haley, (laughs) we are not going to be on the edge of our
1: seats on Saturday for the South Carolina primary. I have a feeling it will be a nothing burger. I have a feeling that Trump will win, maybe not by 30, but probably by 20. If he wins by 15, that's a winner for her. But, you know, who knows? Maybe something happens differently and we'll talk about it next week. Registered voters can participate regardless of whether they are a Republican or a Democrat, as long as they haven't previously voted in the Democratic primary. But as you know, Jen, she's vowed to stay in the race after South Carolina. So it's interesting because
0: what she's done, she's tactically very smart, right? She came out on Tuesday before the South Carolina primary on Saturday to say, hey, I'm staying in. So like, let me just like let that set in before I get crushed in my own state. And also Super Tuesday was two weeks from that day. She wants people in Super Tuesday states to know she's still going to be around so they can still organize, raise money. By the way, she raised more money than Donald Trump did in the month of January. So she has money to stick around for a while. And I think whereas we thought maybe she would stay in Super Tuesday and then get out, I think she plans to stay in. And there's no precedence for any of what we're going through in this presidential election year. But I think she thinks she's going to stay in until the convention and just kind of be a thorn in his side, you know, and then decide what to do. Of course, you know, she could run as a third party candidate. She kind of sounds like one, except for saying that embryos are babies because that's going to get you into some trouble. You know what? what? She may not be staying in until the
1: convention. Yeah. She may be staying in until the conviction. <laughs> that, yes, you were correct. Hanging around the hoop. I think she's hanging around the hoop for one of those offensive
0: rebounds. That's what I think is going on. There you go. There you go. So as Claire mentioned at the top, if you're in the New York area next week, join me and Claire for a live conversation with MSNBC's Katie Turr at the 92nd Street Y. I have never been to the 92nd Street Y. It has like such a storied history. I'm super excited to do it. Also, I get to meet Claire's husband and Claire gets to meet my husband. That's also very exciting. It's Thursday, February 29th at 8 p.m. Eastern. And if you're not in the area, you can also join us online. We'll be talking Super Tuesday and looking at how to win this incredibly consequential election. It's going to be a lot of fun. Be sure to join us. You can get more info at 92ny.org, And we'll link to the site in our show notes. Thanks so much for listening. As always, if you have a question for us, you can send it to howtowinquestions at NBC. UNI.com, or you can leave us a voicemail at 646-974-4194, and we might answer it on the pod. And remember to subscribe to MSNBC's How to Win newsletter to get weekly insights on this year's key races sent straight to your inbox. I wrote a long piece this week about why it would be bonkers to try to replace Joe Biden and why he remains... He remains Democrats' best option to beat Donald Trump for lots of reasons. Money, organization, skills, accomplishments. So check that out and visit the link in our show notes to sign up for the email. This show is produced by Vicki Vergolina and Jessica Schrecker. Paul Mouncey,
1: Katherine Anderson, and Bob Mallory are our audio engineers. Our head of audio production is Bryson Barnes. Aisha Turner is the executive producer for MSNBC Audio, And Rebecca Cutler is the Senior Vice President for Content Strategy at MSNBC.
0: Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts and follow the series.